This episode has been brought to you by Spring Cleaning Season. It's time to vacuum all the crusty french fries from the floor of your car, shampoo the carpet, finally tackle and organize that heap in the closet you say you'll get to every year, but you never do, but always say when it's time for spring cleaning you finally will. Oh, and don't forget how you're going to deep clean the fridge and scrub every shelf top to bottom. Okay. I'm talking more to myself than the audience, to be honest. Luckily, I'm moving out of my apartment in a month, so I have no excuses left. And, thanks to the lord of the leases, I'm obligated to forcefully participate in spring cleaning this year. But hey, who says you need to get everything done? If all you do this year for spring cleaning is open a few windows and scrub out a few stains, that is okay. Maybe this will be a good episode to put on while you get a bit of cleaning done. Because, unless you didn't happen to notice the timestamp, you are in for a lucky treat today. Greetings, by the way. This is the Root of All Ope, and I'm your host, Tatum Schrader. First, real quick reminder to my patrons. If you're in the $12 tier or above, you are welcome to submit a poem or short story as a recommendation to be read in the next episode. And yes, you are allowed to submit your own if you wish. I want to improve at reciting poetry and stories, and I'm always down for a challenge, so if you know of something a bit unconventional, throw it at me. On that note, for today's reading, I'll be doing a poem by Walt Whitman. It's called Night on the Prairies. And to be honest, the reason I selected this poem is because of the visuals and emotions it made me reflect on when I went back to it. I studied a bit of Whitman's work in college but I'm far from an expert on his stuff. But this poem makes me think of the open nature and just getting away from the city and losing myself in the wilderness, which is sort of my happy place and something I hope to do again very soon. It also, well, makes me think of digging around in the Red Dead Redemption 2 open world map, but I digress. Night on the Prairies The supper is over. The fire on the ground burns low. The wearied immigrants sleep, wrapped in their blankets. I walk by myself. I stand and look at the stars, which I think now I never realized before. Now I absorb immortality and peace. I admire death and test propositions. How plenteous, how spiritual, a resume, the same old man and soul, the same old aspirations, and the same content. I was thinking the day most splendid, till I saw what the not day exhibited. I was thinking this globe enough, till there sprang out so noiseless around me myriads of other globes. Now, while the great thoughts of space and eternity fill me, I will measure myself by them. And now, touched with the lives of other globes, arrived as far along as those of the earth, or waiting to arrive, or passed on farther than those of the earth, I henceforth no more ignore them than I ignore my own life, or the lives of the earth arrived as far as mine, or waiting to arrive. Oh, I see now that life cannot exhibit all to me, as the day cannot. I see that I am to wait for what will be exhibited by death. Now, 
unless you either don't have internet access or you have little interest in the latest happenings on pop culture. In either case, I am both impressed and flattered that you are still listening to my podcast this far. You would know that many people are talking about the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, currently streaming on HBO Max. And that got me thinking back to a particular Zack Snyder film that blew me out of the water with its spectacular storytelling, its groundbreaking soundtrack, and its aesthetic structure, and its long-lasting legacy. Yes, you guessed it right, we are talking about Sucker Punch. This 2011 film, written, produced, and directed by Zack Snyder, follows a group of young women trapped in a menstrual institution who enter various levels of a fantasy world in order to cope, and later, to escape. It currently stands at 22% on Rotten Tomatoes and 33 out of 100 on Metacritic. It grossed about $89 million worldwide on an $82 million budget, and was considered a major box office failure. And I see now that this seems to become a repeat theme of my podcast, but what can I say? I root for the underdog, and I hardly ever trust what film critics or tomatoes has to say. I guess that just means my idea of what makes a good movie differs from what are common themes in the critically acclaimed film. Alas, I am but a lowly, blue-collar, everyday consumer who simply knows what they like when they see it. That being said, I think there is plenty of rich material to unpack with Sucker Punch, and we're going to talk about the music, the visuals, the themes, and more. On the surface, sure, it could be perceived as just another wannabe blockbuster. However, upon looking closer, much like putting on a new pair of prescription glasses, a lot of little details and illusions in the film become clear. So, maybe I'm not that lowly of a consumer after all. Maybe all the critics who hated this movie need a long overdue appointment to the optometrist. On the other hand, in doing my research for this episode, I learned that for every five bad reviews out there for Sucker Punch, there also seems to be a review supporting it, especially among the geek fan community that have been following Snyder's filmography closely. It's a very polarizing film, not one that folks seem to have a casual opinion on. It's a love-it-or-hate-it film, which I've seen is also the case with other Zack Snyder films, so maybe it's a trend? Anyway, it was a real treat to read some of the fan theories out there, and I will get more into theories later. Now, two things inspire me to select this movie for this episode. One is, of course, the Snyder Justice League cut and the new wave of discussion about his films currently going on. Two is that on March 25th, Sucker Punch hit its 10th anniversary. What better time then, I think, to unpack this movie? So, without further ado, let's get started. Or, shall we say, get punching. Now one quick thing before we get on a roll, I want to make a warning about some of the content in this film that will be discussed. As already mentioned, this film is almost entirely set in a mental institute. This physical and emotional abuse of inmates depicted in many scenes. Throughout the film, we also have the recurring theme of sexual abuse and assault. It is all watered down just enough to keep the film PG-13. However, the implications are still quite intense, 
and show enough that you have an idea of what's going on. At its worst, we have an attempted rape scene and metaphors for rape. So, if this sort of content is triggering for you, I highly advise preparation or avoidance. So, let's start by addressing the title of the film. A Sucker Punch is basically an unexpected hit or blow. This title is neither addressed nor explained once in the entire movie, but Snyder has told us a bit about why he chose it. As Snyder explained in an interview with Metro West Daily News, the title relates to how the film subverts the audience's expectations. Quote, We sort of plant this seed of this thing, and then at the end of the movie, it kind of comes back around. I think that in some ways, that's what the sucker punch is. But also you, the audience, have a preconceived idea when you look at the main character. You think she's innocent and sweet, that she's capable of only a certain amount of things. But I think that's a mistake. So that has something to do with the title too. I will take a moment in this episode later to talk about Snyder's intentions with this film. But first I want to walk you through it and point out specific things that I noticed. Then we'll circle back to Snyder's own explanations. But for now, I want you to leave with that idea in mind, that this is a film in which expectations will be subverted, and we should anticipate the unexpected to happen. Sucker Punch is, first and foremost, a psychological adventure, one in which the scenes taking place are more of an allegory to a human experience or train of thought than a concrete sequence of events. It leaves you forced to ask yourself if what you just saw actually happened, or if it happened inside a character's mind, and if so, whose mind? And if it happened in more than one mind, how many was it? It brought me back to the works of Charlie Kaufman, who has written classic head-scratchers like Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and more recently, I'm thinking of Ending Things. It also reminded me of certain psychological thrillers like Shutter Island, Black Swan, or Memento. The way it forces you to ask when or if things are happening at all, if it's a dream or reality, and so on. Basically, if you like movies of that sort of nature, you stand to gain a lot from Sucker Punch. Now at the same time, Sucker Punch is also an action-packed popcorn flick. Because of course, this is not David Lynch directing, but Zack Snyder. And it's got it all. Zombies, robots, dragons, knights, castles, samurai, airplanes, blimps, bombs, swords, and machine guns, and many slow-mo fight scenes. If you like sequences that just look cool and fun, you also have a lot you will enjoy from this movie. So, in short, what we have is a combination of two very different films. A mind-bending, psychological think-piece depicting various aspects of the human mind, teetering on the line between fantasy and reality, propelling the viewer into an introspective experience on the will to survive, and a classic Zack Snyder shoot 'em up blow 'em up movie. What's not to love here, you guys? It's got it all. In fact, the only thing that would make it better is Oscar Isaac wearing black eyeliner, except, oh wait, we have that too. Now, I could honestly put Sucker Punch in the category of movies like Inception or The Matrix, the latter of which I would say is by far the stronger comparison. A mix of mind-bending, timey-wimey, what's real and what isn't real mystery, but with really cool action scenes and a heart-racing plot. 
And in the end, Sucker Punch ultimately leaves the viewer with a very powerful message about the human capacity to endure and overcome. But before we get to that, let's begin, well, at the beginning. Interestingly enough, the film's opening shot shows a stage, with the curtains drawing back to display the title logos and then the first scene. Now, later on in the film, the use of a stage and theater setting will come into play, but for now, it seems to be hinting at a deeper meaning that I'll get into later. Also worth noting is that a character in the film later refers to the interior of the mental institute as a theater. So, from the first few seconds, basically, we get the recurring theme of a theater, and more importantly, that we are in the seats of the auditorium. Put a pin on that one. The opening scene of Sucker Punch relies entirely on the visuals for you to understand what's going on. It almost feels like a twisted music video. We're introduced to a home set in the 1950s. We watch as our hero, a 20-year-old young woman, suffers through a very traumatic sequence of events. Now, we never get her actual name, but later she's addressed using the nickname Baby Doll, so I'm going to describe her using that name. First, her mother dies. Then, her horrible stepfather finds out that her two daughters, instead of him, inherit the mother's fortune. It's never outright confirmed that he orchestrated the mother's death to get the fortune, but I'm pretty sure it's heavily implied. In a fit of rage at this news, the stepfather attempts to rape Baby Doll, and when she escapes, he then attacks her little sister. Baby Doll tries to save her sister from him and points a pistol at her stepfather. She fires it at him, but in a twisted turn of events, the bullet ricochets and fatally strikes her sister instead. To make matters worse, she is framed for her sister's death and taken away to a menstrual institute to be locked away forever. We're literally seven minutes into the film and Baby Doll has already lost everything. Her mother, her sister, her home, her inheritance, her freedom, and now her future. And all because a man with enough power to do so has used her to gain a fortune. Also worth noting, she has yet to have a single word of dialogue. Even some of her screams and cries of anguish, having witnessed said traumatic events, are completely muted by the song playing over the scenes. So, for the beginning of the film, she literally has no voice, no say in what's happened to her. We don't even get to know her real name, almost as a signal to the autonomy and freedom stolen from her. Overhead, Baby Doll hears one of the doctors, named Blue, pay off her stepfather, because they both know she's innocent and that she poses a threat as long as she is of sound mind. She also hears them discuss giving her a lobotomy as a means to silence her forever. Now, I'm going to take a little break from talking about the film to give some of this a historical perspective. I believe it was intentional for the writers to lead Baby Doll's story with this, since this has been a very similar situation women have suffered for centuries. Lobotomies were introduced to the medical scene in the 1930s, and over 18,000 were performed between 1936 and 1952. Well over half of the patients subjected to it were women. Now some sources I found say the percentage of women were 60%, but others say it could have been as high as 84%. In addition, for a large part of the 19th century, 
Many women were sent away to private or public asylums, and for all sorts of reasons, for physical illness, love affairs, postnatal depression, exhaustion, laziness, having a temper, being horny, wine a divorce, grieving the loss of a child, you name it. It also did not help matters that the men in charge of these women, usually the husband or father, could legally send them away and the women would have no say in it. This could also be used to silence a woman if someone felt she was being too outspoken about her opinions or if she did not behave the way men believed she should. So it's very telling what Snyder is trying to do with this story by including the situation that reigns true for many women in not so far off history. It is almost as if Baby Doll represents many women throughout the ages who have been wrongfully convicted, accused of madness, and locked away with no hope of a brighter future. I'll talk a little bit more about that idea later. But for a movie that's about to be full of zombies, dragons, and samurai robots, it's a moment that is quite real. And yet, despite this bleak setup of events, there is one piece of dialogue. In fact, the first spoken dialogue by a female character, mind you, that stands out from the rest. You control this world, one of the doctors at the institute states to one of the inmates. Let the pain go. Let the hurt go. What you're imagining right now, that world you control, that place can be as real as any pain. As this same character later clarifies to the Dr. Blue, she is helping the girl survive. So keep in mind that these are the words she says to the girl to help her do so. For now, we do not know this about her as the audience, but her words definitely stand out. And this statement does not go unheard by Baby Doll. She hears it clearly, and this statement foreshadows what's in store for the rest of the story. A few days pass, and it's time for her lobotomy. Baby Doll is strapped down into a chair, the needle pointed at her forehead. All is lost, and her life as she knows it is about to end. And then, as soon as the operation is about to begin, things get a bit weird. The camera pans back, and suddenly it is not Baby Doll, but an actress, a girl we later know to be named Sweet Pea in Baby Doll's place. And we see that these actors are on a stage, filming an adult movie of some sorts. And Baby Doll, instead of being an actress who's about to fake being lobotomized, is the newcomer at this theater, which as we discover is more of a vaudeville theater slash brothel. Also, the entire set and makeup are different. The characters are played by the same people we saw before, but they are dressed in new outfits. Basically, reality has flipped on its head, and Baby Doll has entered a fantasy version of her world. Remember how the image of a stage was going to come back? It seems that now Baby Doll imagines herself on a stage, performing for an audience, except it's a double whammy because someone is playing Baby Doll and it's not even the real her. Put a pin on this one too. I know, big paid cushion for this episode, but bear with me a bit longer. Now, before we continue, Let's take a moment to dissect some thoughts I have on this whole fantasy world baby doll enters. When you're traumatized or unsafe, your brain is going to find a way to cope with it. Perhaps the reality you are living in is just too terrifying, and the idea of things continuing the way you foresee them continuing is just too frightening. 
But what happens when you are physically incapable from escaping? Suppose this terrifying reality is not something you can just leave by hopping on a bus or hanging up the phone. What if something or someone is forcing you to continue being in the situation? Or worse yet, what if your terrifying reality is a part of you and something you could not even escape if you changed your name, made yourself legally dead in your country, and start a new life as a bartender on a tropical island? Well, that is where escapism comes in. Escapism can take all kinds of forms, and of course, some can be healthy and others not so healthy. Some people may draw to social media, living another life they post to Instagram or Twitter that does not match with the reality they are facing when they log off. Some may lose themselves at work, intentionally becoming busy with projects and tasks so they don't have to deal with whatever is weighing for them at home. Some may fall deep into substance abuse, numbing the pain rather than facing it. Of course, there are other ways you can use escapism that are not harmful, like reading a book, painting or drawing, watching a movie, or listening to your all-time favorite podcast. Who knows, you might even be practicing escapism right this minute. By using escapism in a healthy way, you can help decrease your stress levels and induce positive mood states. Basically, recharge your battery. Take a break from what's stressing you out. In fact, you probably use escapism a lot more than you'd think. If you've ever put on a favorite song or TV show after a bad day, that's a form of escapism. And that is exactly what we see Baby Doll do. As she stares at the needle about to perform the horrendous surgery on her, her mind goes elsewhere, to a place that isn't real. Except, that's not all she's doing here. Sure, she's retreated into a fantasy world to cope, but she's not just there to play Hakuna Matata and forget all about her troubles forever and ever. Rather, she wants to escape. She wants to figure out how she can get out of the asylum and reclaim the life that was taken from her. We can use escapism when the reality is overwhelming, when it's just too much to bear. We go to a place where we can calm down, regulate our emotions, and ground ourselves. But of course, as we all know, at some point you're going to have to face whatever is causing you stress. We cannot paint, do drugs, or play video games forever. Eventually, the self-care playlist comes to an end. The point of escapism is to give us a temporary place to recuperate until we're ready to face reality again. A pit stop on the road rather than the end destination. Or another way to say it would be a checkpoint before the boss battle. See, I see Baby Doll as understanding the power of healthy escapism. That is, not to put aside your problems and pretend they don't exist, but to find a place within yourself where you can, by distancing yourself from reality, find the strength within yourself so that when you do return to reality, you'll be ready to face it and survive. So, let's jump back to the theater slash brothel. Baby Doll is brought in as the new girl, again. We also meet another inmate, Rocket, who explains to Baby Doll that they are the workers at this brothel. Rocket and Sweet Pea are sisters, by the way. Remember that because it's important. We also meet two other girls who are nicknamed Blondie and Amber. We more or less find out that these five girls work at the brothel against their will, under the control of Blue, the same corrupt doctor from before, except now Blue is the leader of this place. Of course, as we the viewers know, this all takes place in Baby Doll's mind. 
But why, we ask, does she retreat into a fantasy world in which she is forced to work at a brothel? Why not, say, go to a happier place where she does not have to worry about any of her troubles? Why go into a make-believe place where she is still subject to the same abuse she is facing in the asylum? I wonder if this is not so much a fantasy, but a means for Baby Doll to reconcile some of the realities she faces at the Menstrual Institute. The sexual abuse the inmates endure at the Institute is not explicitly shown, but in small passing glimpses here and there, shots that cut away at just the right moment to keep the film PG-13, we get the idea of how the male doctors can and do take advantage of these helpless women. You might miss it at first glance, but as soon as you understand that it is there, you can't unsee it. Meanwhile, at the brothel, it is stated explicitly how they will be treated, and that that is the only reason they are there. Perhaps for Baby Doll, imagining this place as a brothel is her coming to terms with what this place truly is, and how she is being mistreated. That she is not being treated as a mentally ill patient in need of care and recovery, but as an object that can be abused because she has no voice or freedom. Also, once you see that baby doll being forced to dance in front of men, the way this parallels how she's being abused in the real world becomes pretty horrific. Therefore, perhaps by creating a fantasy world, she is helping to accept some of the horrors of her own reality. Furthermore, maybe she is overcoming manipulation from the doctors. Perhaps they convinced her she was not being sexually abused, that they were, let's say, doing her a favor or being nice to her, giving her something no other man was going to give her. And by imagining her and the girls as being forced to work at a brothel, she is internally fighting back said manipulation, admitting to herself that no, these men are hurting her, and this is how they are hurting her. To add to this theory, I think it's also worth talking about how Oscar Isaac, who plays the Dr. Blue, summarized his take on the fantasy versus the real worlds. In the real world, Blue is a corrupt doctor who abuses the girls and gradually struggles to maintain a tight grip on the Institute. But in the brothel fantasy, he is this suave, Clark Gable-looking guy with a bunch of girls he calls his toys making him riches. As Isaac explained it in an interview with Gizmodo, Quote, Usually, when you play a character, you like to see the different sides, who they are and who they wish they were, and who they're afraid they might be. This was an opportunity to really show that explicitly. Although it's from Baby Doll's imagination, for my own personal work, I imagine this was Blue's fantasy of what he could be, someone that is in control, that's powerful, that's making important decisions, that's loved and feared, and looks like a matinee idol. So, ultimately, the brothel fantasy is a place where Blue fully embodies who he wants to be, how he wants to see himself, and the fact that Baby Doll sees that in Blue shows that she sees him for who he really is. Baby Doll has, in essence, identified Blue's corruption and his perversion. But the fantasy goes deeper still, and this second level of fantasy world conjures up when Baby Doll is forced to perform a dance routine in front of the other girls and the employees of the brothel. She has to dance, or she'll be ruined. Her fight for her survival starts now, the woman says. The same woman who spoke words of wisdom from earlier, although of course she is now dressed different. 
As Baby Doll begins to dance, she closes her eyes and opens them to a whole new world. A fantasy, snowy landscape that borrows heavily from the aesthetic of feudal Japan. She enters a strange old temple in which a guy dressed like a warrior is presumably waiting for her. We'll call him Wise Man because that's what the movie's wiki page says. And, of course, this guy is white. But why a white guy is in feudal Japan? Well, Snyder leaves that one a complete mystery. Anyway, Wise Man gives Baby Doll a weapon for her journey to freedom. He also tells her that she needs five items in order to escape. A map, fire, a knife, and a key. Now the fifth item is a mystery. It's the reason or the goal for her escape. It will be a deep sacrifice and a perfect victory that only she can find. After that, like an NPC introducing you to the first level of the game, Wise Man tells her to defend herself and takes off. And we launch into the first major action scene of the movie in which Baby Doll must defeat huge robot samurai monster things. We don't just have katanas, oh no. We have a machine gun the size of a cannon, explosions, collapsing buildings, etc. It feels a lot like a video game, one that only Snyder could come up with, mixing the styles of 300 and Watchmen into one. It is in this fantasy world that allows Baby Doll to complete the required dance at the brothel, by retreating into a fantasy in which she defeats her enemies, she is able to overcome her fear of failure and disgrace and perform an excellent dance routine. It's an example of reaching into yourself, reaching in to fight your inner demons so that you can accomplish the difficult task in front of you. I rewatched that scene for this episode to see if I could figure out if each of the giant samurai Robert monster dudes symbolizes something specific she had to fight in order to be able to pull off the dance. Before the life of me, I couldn't find anything. But of course, not to say there are not even more details in that sequence, I just didn't pick up on them. One quick note, I almost wish the wise man would have been a female character too, because, I don't know, maybe it would have been cool if Baby Doll gets guidance from another woman rather than a man. I do have some other thoughts on the wise man, but I'll save those for later, so let's keep going. Last pin, I promise. Back in the brothel fantasy, Baby Doll relays the five items they need to escape to the other girls. They point out various places they have seen these said items, and they start to form a plan to acquire all the items they need so they can get out of there. The first item in question is the map. The next time Baby Doll goes into this deep video game-esque fantasy world, she is not alone. She has her allies with her, and they are in a steampunk, sci-fi fantasy version of World War I, complete with zombie German soldiers. Okay, they actually say the word steampunk in one part, and we have giant blimps, but we also have a high-tech-looking weapon straight out of a Marvel movie, so I'm not sure how exactly to describe the aesthetic. And I don't think Snyder would either, and maybe we don't have to. It's fun enough that I just don't care. Also, Wise Man is there again, this time as the officer debriefing them on their mission, which he will also do for the next two dream sequences. However, this sequence is super important because it's the first time Baby Doll has her friends by her side. It represents how she is no longer facing her demons alone, how this has become a we effort. It's a scene that bonds the girls together, gives them a sense of teamwork which they'll desperately need in the brothel if they are going to escape. 
Also, in the background of one of the brothel scenes, we do see a poster for the film My Dream is Yours, which I think alludes to this new shared fantasy by the girls. On another note, let's talk about how Baby Doll imagines a World War I fantasy alternate reality. And you may think I'm really reaching here, but hear me out. First off, again, this film takes place in the 1950s. Baby Doll, according to IMDb and the movie's wiki page, is 20 years old, which places her birth as early as 1930 and as late as 1939. World War I would have only happened a little over 30 years before Sucker Punch takes place. This means that Baby Doll's mother and birth father would have been children or young adults during World War I. They may have had fathers, brothers, friends, or neighbors who served in World War I and maybe even were killed. If that is the case, that trauma would have had long-lasting effects on Baby Doll's parents, and in turn, she would have had inherited that trauma. This is a little something called generational trauma. Generational trauma is, essentially, trauma that extends from one generation to the next, an event that is so devastating that it affects the family structure, basically in parents passing on their own anxieties, grief, etc. to their children. The children are therefore affected by a trauma they did not directly experience. Could it be possible that Baby Doll experienced generational trauma because of the fact that her parents lived through the First World War? I would say it's more than possible, it's certain. Also, Baby Doll would have been born as late as the start of World War II in 1939. As a little girl, she would have grown up witnessing the war in real time. She may have had early memories of seeing the newsreels and footage from the front lines. At best, Baby Doll would have grown up around families and in communities directly affected by the war. Everyone who would have known someone who never came home. She would have heard stories about all the boys who were killed, all the hardships they endured during the war. Maybe her birth father was killed in the war. Maybe she never even got to meet him. Who knows? It's worth asking at least. They don't mention him ever in the movie, so your guess is as good as mine. So, it is not just generational trauma, but possibly her own trauma from living through the Second World War that Baby Doll is facing, and the fact that she had a childhood not unlike her mother's. In her fantasy, she literally gets to tear apart zombie Germans, run through the trenches, and save the world. Things she of course could not do in the real world. Things that maybe she wished friends or family would have been able to do and come home to tell her about. But the fact that it's strictly a World War I aesthetic points to the fact that she seems to be processing more of the trauma inherited to her by her mother and birth father, and not necessarily her own trauma for growing up during World War II. It's also worth noting that the World War I aesthetic of the planes and guns carries on into the other fantasies, and that she and her friends are the ones using these weapons. She is not only learning how to work as a teammate with the other girls, she is also confronting the demons she inherited from her parents, and she's dealing with them head on. The fact that her mother died and that we have no idea what happened to her birth father also means Baby Doll does not have the chance to process her generational trauma by talking to them. But in this fantasy world, she can begin to find healing and strength. Now I'm not saying that Snyder did this all on purpose, and maybe he did, I don't know. But I see the use of the World War I fantasy alternate reality as a symbol for Baby Doll processing her generational trauma. 
the wounds that the war would have had on her parents, her upbringing, and of course, the world around her. And most importantly, she is doing so in a fantasy world where she is in control. She gets to kill the bad guys and save the day. She faces the enemy and she overcomes. Now with that steampunk therapy session complete, now the girls have the map acquired for their escape. We return to the brothel, but only for a moment. As soon as Baby Doll has to perform on stage for the brothel's attendees, she returns to the fantasy world. Once again, we're in some steampunk fantasy sequence, although it's more medieval fantasy this time since we have a castle and knights definitely borrowing from the medieval Europe aesthetic. But again, we have machine guns and planes too. Also, the other girls are there again, and this time they are after the next item, fire. In the brothel, this symbolizes a lighter, which belongs to a brothel regular called the High Roller. But in the fantasy world, it is of course a dragon. Now this one is my least favorite of the fantasy scenes because their mission here is to slay a dragon, and not just any dragon, but a baby dragon and then the mama dragon, and I really, really love dragons. But, on the bright side, the girls have, for a second time in a row, succeeded in working together, using their teamwork in a fantasy realm in which they are badass warriors finding the courage they need. They are seeing themselves as the ones in control, the soldiers on a mission. And by approaching it with this mindset, Baby Doll manages to successfully put on a dance so great it distracts the men, while another girl steals the lighter. In the final fantasy sequence, Baby Doll enters it when she must perform a dance to seduce the cook as a distraction for part of their escape plan. Again, we're still in the brothel fantasy. Now this last fantasy in particular takes place on a train, which is, of course, filled with evil robots, and it has a bomb that will detonate as soon as it reaches a city. The bomb in question symbolizes the real-life radio they have set to explode, as well as the knife they are trying to steal from the cook. Now this scene is particularly interesting, because unlike the previous ones, this one cuts back to the real world in the middle of it. In a moment of panic, when all hope seems lost, Baby Doll returns to the fantasy world to find out what to do. The fantasy world has become a means for her to rediscover her strength, ground herself, and take the next step forward. Unfortunately, the mission fails. Not only do they not succeed, but Rocket is stabbed by the cook, and she dies. In an extra twist of irony, Sweet Pea is blamed for her sister's death, as if she could have prevented it. As punishment for their escape attempt, Blue kills two of the other girls, Amber and Blondie. This leaves just Sweet Pea and Baby Doll left. Using the items they have stolen, the girls start a fire in order to make their escape from the brothel in the final climax of the movie. As a side note, for their ultimate escape scene, they do not enter the fantasy world anymore, which I found quite interesting. It seems that the fantasy world has served its purpose for the time being, and it's no longer needed. Has Baby Doll understood that she has gained all the strength she needs from this fantasy, and she is prepared to re-enter the real world? Or perhaps, in the brothel fantasy, she realized that she can think of the lobotomy as something she chooses rather than something that is forced on her. As for the two girls, 
They manage to get as far as outside, but there is a group of men blocking them from the gate. There is no way out, and they are trapped. But remember, there were five things they needed to escape. Map, fire, a knife, and a key. But the fifth item was a mystery. They've only found four. Baby Doll, in a moment of clarity, discovers what the key is, herself. That she needs to stay behind so Sweet Pea can escape and survive. You going home and living, that's how we win, she tells Sweet Pea. This was never my story, it's yours. Now let's pause again. Why would Baby Doll tell Sweet Pea this was never her story, but Sweet Pea's? Now remember way back when Baby Doll was just about to undergo the lobotomy, and then we enter a fantasy world in which Sweet Pea is an actress in that same chair? Now that may have seemed like an odd choice in the moment, but now we can see it was foreshadowing. Snyder was sending us a hint that this story is really focused on Sweet Pea's escape, about her story continuing on, not Baby Doll. In the end, Baby Doll successfully distracts the men outside the brothel in time for Sweet Pea to escape. As soon as the first man strikes Baby Doll, suddenly we are back where we started, in the doctor's chair in the mental institute, with Baby Doll just having gone through the lobotomy operation. But at least the surgeon who just performed it feels a little bit guilty about it. However, as the doctor and nurse are discussing said patient as she sits in the chair, we learn what she has been up to in the few days since she was committed to the institute. Not only did she start a fire, she helped another inmate escape. As she is led back to her cell, we slowly see the various objects in the fantasy sequences. The fire, the lighter, even the fire they started. As it turns out, the events that went down the brothel actually happened in the real world. And this entire time, we were actually watching a flashback of some sorts. All the fantasy scenes in Baby Doll's head happened in the days leading up to the lobotomy. How much of it, we ask? We know a fire happened, but what does that mean for Rocket, Blondie, and Amber? Zack Snyder has stated that none of the girls die in the real world, so we're left to wonder what their fates are, or what their deaths in the fantasy world imply. My theory is that, like Baby Doll, they are also lobotomized, and each time we see them die in the fantasy world is when they are taken away to undergo the surgery. And also, what do the dances in the brothel symbolize? Again, if we follow the implied sexual abuse the girls face, then we can assume the worst with this metaphor. But as for just how much the brothel fantasy reflects the real world, we are only left to guess and assume. Either way, one thing we do know is that Sweet Pea was real, and she escaped with Baby Doll's help. We do have a bit of justice in the end, with Blue being arrested for his corrupt crimes, but it is sadly too little too late, as Baby Doll is already lobotomized. However, Sweet Pea goes on to run away, and presumably start a new life outside of the mental institute. She hops on a bus and rides off literally into the sunset, or is it a sunrise? I guess you get to pick. Now, I believe Sweet Pea represents the life Baby Doll realized had been taken from her, the life she could not have. Even in the scene where Baby Doll undergoes the lobotomy, the surgeon states she looked like she almost wanted it. Baby Doll, in essence, has passed on her strength and will to survive to Sweet Pea, and allowing Sweet Pea to live free, 
Baby Doll has made peace with the loss of her sister in the beginning of the film. She could not save her sister in time, just like Sweet Pea could not save Rocket in time. But Baby Doll could save Sweet Pea, and she accepts her fate knowing that someone else has escaped because of her. The final kicker is that Sweet Pea not only narrates the final lines at the end of the film, but as it turns out, she was the narrator in the very beginning. The opening lines of the film, which include the statement, It's every one of us who holds the power over the worlds we create is a direct metaphor for what is to come, because it is within her fantasy worlds that Baby Doll discovered how she could escape. Now on a quick side note, one thing I especially love about all these fantasy worlds and the entering and exit thereof is that there is no long-winded, highbrow explanation of what's happening. I'm talking to you 50% of the dialogue in every Christopher Nolan film. There is no scene forcibly having Baby Doll ask, what the fuck is going on? Or, what just happened and please speak English? And we have some explanation of the fantasy worlds that is supposed to sound smart but is actually quite dumb. There is no pause where we are spoon-fed the fact that, yes, we are in a fantasy world or that Baby Doll is disassociating or events in the fantasy world reflect reality. It is just there for us to piece together. There are enough clues and visual cues for us to figure it out, but suffice it to say, it feels kind of nice to feel like the filmmakers trust the audience to understand it, unlike films at Conception, which constantly break from the action to over-explain the entire premise. Do we get answers as to why there are certain characters that appear in the fantasy worlds before Baby Doll or her friends meet them in the real world, which is supposed to be literally impossible? Do we get answers as to how Baby Doll and Sweet Pea pulled off their escape in the real world, or what happened to the other girls? We don't. And frankly, do we need to? Granted, it does leave the viewer with a lot of questions. But doesn't that make it more fun when instead of having all the answers laid out, you get to come up with your own ideas of what it all means? Zack Snyder has stated that the movie is structurally similar to The Wizard of Oz, and that the fantasies are a metaphor for the real world. If we follow that logic, certain mysteries of the film start to fall together, and we understand that through the fantasy world, we're watching events in the real world unfold. But for reasons I touched on before, the reason we see them happen in the fantasy world is to make subtle character traits or emotional journeys explicit, to reveal things that are not so obvious in the real world, but in a fantasy world, they're front and center. We see a similar idea in The Wizard of Oz, in which the characters Dorothy meets on her journey represent traits of people she knows in the real world. On that note, let's get into a couple theories of mine. The first theory is that the wise man is either Baby Doll's biological father or possibly grandfather. Reason one for this theory is that the wise man, so we're told, exists in the real world and not just in the fantasy, as he is the bus driver on the bus that Sweet Pea gets on for her escape. But he also appears as this fatherly figure providing advice in Baby Doll's mind. And it's worth noting that a positive fatherly figure is what Baby Doll doesn't get in real life. Her stepfather is pure garbage, and we don't know what happened to her birth father. So perhaps, Baby Doll's subconscious projected the image of her father or grandfather as the wise man who advises her what items she needs in order to escape. 
Now, I don't like the idea that Baby Doll needs a fatherly figure at all, nor that she needs a man to direct her. But this is more of a reflection on Baby Doll's own grief and longing, and how she projects that in her fantasy world. My other theory is that Baby Doll, as I previously mentioned a little bit, is meant to symbolize all the women from past generations who have suffered abuse and oppression. To me, this is made clear in that the trauma she endures in the opening scene, as I mentioned before, is similar to real things women have dealt with in the past. And Sweet Pea represents the next generation of women who now have sorts of freedoms and opportunities they didn't have before, and that they can now carry on the legacy of those before them. This theory might be a bit more obvious in the first, but I don't think it was ever confirmed officially by Snyder. Anyhow, those are just my own personal theories you don't have to agree with. Now, this review would be incomplete if we also do not talk about the music in this movie. Much like the film I discussed in the last episode, Sucker Punch's soundtrack is very intentional in that it helps tell the story. The lyrics throughout the film represent the inner thoughts and feelings of the characters, and it is also worth noting that the actress who plays Baby Doll, Emily Browning, performs the vocals for three songs throughout the film. These three songs are Sweet Dreams, Asleep, and Where Is My Mind. The fact that Baby Doll's actress sings these songs is telling us that these are Baby Doll's innermost feelings, that we are getting a glimpse into her subconscious. But this is not the only significance music has in the film. Music is also what brings Baby Doll in and out of the fantasy worlds. If you remember, she enters the fantasy worlds before she has to perform a dance, or as a song is about to play. In Snyder's words, music launches her into the fantasy world. It is quite literally the bridge between fantasy and reality, and not just the bridge, but the outlet by which Baby Doll can enter these worlds in the first place. This movie would be incomplete without its soundtrack, which I absolutely love to listen to whenever I'm reading a scene in a story that involves lots of ass-kicking. So, when you watch this movie, pay attention to not only when the songs start playing, but which lyrics are playing at key moments. To come full circle, I will talk briefly about Snyder's own intentions with making his movie. One major thing he's talked about is that Sucker Punch is a satire of sexism in geek culture. It's a depiction of how women are fetishized and turned into sex objects. But of course, it's also about those same women using the weapons aimed at them and turning them on the oppressors, taking control of their narrative and fighting for freedom. So, my take as to why the movie opens with the image of a stage is because Snyder is telling us that we are in the same audience. That there are people watching this movie who share the same kind of guilt as the men watching the stage in the brothel fantasy. Snyder is telling the male fans in geek culture who are turning up to this movie because it's Snyder's name on it that you all play a part in this. That among the crowd there are men who not only have hurt women just like we see in the film but they have turned a blind eye to that hurt. Snyder uses visual cues in the film to demand that the men in the audience question themselves, take a second glance at how they fetishize women and female characters. And to be honest, I personally think it's quite effective. The allegories for sexual abuse and the women dressed in scantily clad outfits are all there for a reason. Now, I'm not going to get into criticisms of Snyder's take on feminism that are all over the internet, 
But all I will say on this is that there is a lot more to the film than I think people see at first glance. And you have to be willing to notice allegories that you may not want to see, specifically in Snyder's geek male audience. And to drive the whole point of the film home, I think is best summarized by the ending narration. Quote, And finally, this question. The mystery of whose story it will be. Of who draws the curtain. Who is it that chooses our steps in the dance? Who drives us mad, lashes us with whips, and crowns us with victory when we survive the impossible? Who is it that does all these things? Who honors those we love with the very life we live? Who sends monsters to kill us and at the same time sings that we will never die? Who teaches us what's real and how to laugh and at lies? Who decides why we live and what we'll die to defend? Who chains us? And who holds the key that can set us free? It's you. You have all the weapons you need. Now fight. And that is the final message of Sucker Punch. That to survive and endure against impossible odds or escape a dangerous place and to leave the people who are hurting you and find a new life for yourself, the power to do it all is within you. That you already have all the weapons you need in order to fight for your best quality of life. Baby Doll, using escapism, reached within herself to find what she needed in order to escape. And in that, she also made the choice to sacrifice her life so Sweet Pea could have a chance at the life that was taken from Baby Doll. And the fact that Sweet Pea narrates the ending rather than Baby Doll shows that Sweet Pea has taken on the mantle given to her by her friend. That you don't need to acquire some hidden secret or become something you're not or find something you never had in order to accomplish your goals. You have everything you need already to fight. We can use friends beside us to help us get there, of course, or better yet, we can work alongside our friends to help us meet our goals together. And we can also use guidance to point us in the right direction if guidance is available. But in the end, we are the ones who can fight back. You have all the weapons you need. Whew, I know this was a long episode, but I had a great time delving deep into this movie. I really hope you enjoyed hearing about all my reaches and theories on my favorite Snyder film. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I know that up until now, I have only stuck to movies since they seem to be the easiest to write an episode on, but I'm tempted to see if I can branch out into other material out there, possibly TV shows, books, even video games. But I'll save that for next time. If you've seen Sucker Punch and have any thoughts or your own theories, feel free to drop them in the comments. If you're in the $6 tier or above, you can drop a question for me to answer in the next episode. If you're in the $12 tier or above, you can also recommend a piece of media you would like me to review, and you can submit up to three questions for me to answer. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.